Okay, today is March the 22nd, 2012, and we prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you are always present and a great help in time of trouble. And certainly this is a a world full of trouble, full of woe. And yet we can rise above it all and have a personal sense of eternal destiny, recognizing this time on this planet is very short. But we need to make the, the, the most of the time that we have. We need to thank divine viewpoint. We need to apply the doctrines that we learn. And we need to keep our spiritual momentum moving forward. We thank you for the assets that you have given us, the ministry of the Holy Spirit that directs us and helps us to fulfill your will. We thank you for your mighty word. Pray that you will help us to focus and concentrate on it this evening. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Just a quick overview of what we went over last time. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 8 through 11. We actually started in Second Peter chapter uh, 1, verse 1. We read through it to get some continuity. We have a lot to cover. We're going to press on. Starting in verse 8, for these qualities, those are the things listed in verses 5 through 7, are yours and are increasing, if they are, and maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but if they are, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. So we recognize from this, if people are not, that is believers, if believers are not, if these qualities are not being increased in their lives, then they can be rendered useless and unfruitful. And notice this, in the true knowledge, epignosis knowledge. Knowledge is linked to so many things in the Bible. It's not that we strut about being uh, biblical know-it-alls. It certainly isn't what God has for us. But we can't be good servants if we don't know what to do, how to act, what to think, or what to say. And we learn all of this from God's mighty Word. And so the knowledge is what is going to enable us to be fruitful. You can't even be fruitful if you don't understand how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, not many believers know how to do that, and yet it is a command. And we recognize that when we are spiritual, it is the Holy Spirit that is producing fruit through us. But when we're carnal, even if we do good things, we have the wrong motivation And it's nothing but human good that is to be burned at the judgment seat of Christ. Neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he, that is the believer, who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. They just don't really get it. They don't connect the dots. And it's very easy for believers to lapse into being super do-gooders. It's, it's fine to be a do-gooder, but you might as well make it count. 
And you can't do that apart from knowledge of the power that God has made available to us through the Holy Spirit. Having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Uh, In verse 6, we notice that uh, in order to get these seven things, you have to add diligence to your faith. It's not that you have a one-shot decision in Jesus Christ. You're saved. You're going to heaven. You say, okay, God, I've done my part. I'll see you in eternity. Don't bug me. That's not what it is. You have to add diligence. Diligence is learning how to execute the Christian way of life, especially the royal family, how to execute the spiritual life as a royal family member. You have to have diligence. You have to have an eagerness, a hunger, in order to grow in grace and knowledge. It's just not going to come up and knock on your door and say, okay, it's time to get with it. And if you don't do this, if you don't add diligence to your faith, then you're not going to have those seven characteristics that we looked at. And this says that you're going to be blind and short-sighted. And also useless and unfruitful. Adding adding, uh, diligence. You could say diligence is tantamount here to positive volition. It's all about your attitude towards God. If you don't want to know God, you don't want to grow up spiritually, you don't have to. God's not going to make you. But he can do what my dad used to tell me. I can't make you do anything, but I can sure make you wish you did. And he reinforced that. Verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent. Here we have that word again. In verse 6, now in verse uh, 10, be diligent. Spudanzo, aorist active imperative. That means it's the command to be diligent about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never, never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. If you are not diligent, if you don't make your calling and choosing or election sure, the consequence is not hell. He's talking to believers. The consequence is that they will stumble. They'll get into carnality. They'll be confused, and they'll be a big zilch as far as any, uh, anything on the radar screen as far as servants for Christ go. And their entrance to he- into heaven... Notice, they're going to heaven. They stumble, but it's, it's not going to be noticed. Uh, we went through all this. Um, I'm just quickly scanning. This make, your, make certain about your calling and uh, choose and making your calling election sure is how tra- some translate it. This is what this does not mean that so many people think it does. They think that you have to check periodically to make sure that you're truly safe. And that's, that is not what it means. Nothing in this, in this whole section is about eternal salvation. It's about experiential sanctification. It's about growing up. That's what you want to make certain, is that you're on track spiritually. And we had a few um, other verses. Uh, Martin, oh, these were the... <laughs> These were so bad. Remember the quotes? Here's one. 
How could Peter's audience make their calling and election by God sure? In the same way James's audience could by examining the fruit of their lives, that they would either vindicate them as true believers or condemn them as professing hypocrites. And so this author is saying you need to look at your life, at your fruit. If you have fruit, you probably are a believer. If not, not so. And that is wrong on so many, so many levels. Here's another one. I, I can't read them all. They, they just make me nauseous. But here, I'll give you one more. Assurance is something a believer must gather by deduction from the change that he sees in his life. Salvation is promised in the Bible to those who believe. The only way, however, a person can know whether he has, look at this, truly believed. And you know what? I, if I ever use that, I've never used that truly believed. But if I ever did, I would say the only way you can know for certain that you truly believe is if you have the right object and the object is Jesus Christ, you know that you truly believe. That's as far as that will ever go as far as it being accurate. So he says the only way you can know is that you truly believe is by seeing the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in his life. Therefore, the nature of this fruit is an important issue if the believer is to know if he has eternal life. Among the Puritans, whole volumes were written to teach how a person may have assurance of salvation and how to contrast false presumption with true assurance. And, of course, what were they looking at? Their work which is just wrong. Martin Luther got it right. Martin Luther wrote that saving faith is the sort of faith that does not look at its own works nor at its own strength and worthiness, noting what sort of quality or new created or infused virtue it may be. According to Luther, it comes from relying on the promises of God's mercy in the gospel and not from any sense of internal change. I have known people who said they, they love to tell their testimony because in their testimony they say, yeah, I was a rat, I was a, I was a fink, I was a jerk, I was all these things, but then I believe in Jesus Christ and then, wow, everything changed and I'm a new person. Is that true? Well, it depends. Are you talking about spiritual things? Or are you talking about him still being a rotten jerk and all the rest of it? Huh? What happened was he went from being a rotten, fink, jerk, unbeliever to a rotten, fink, jerk, believer. It just isn't wave. God doesn't wave the magic wand in the next moment. You have all this virtue. You have all this character. You have all this knowledge. And you just, you just automatically do the right thing. And your temper is gone. You automatically are infused with all this patience that you didn't have before. I can tell you for sure that was not, that's not right. I remember a, a person one time said, I was, uh, this person had a, tr a trouble with bad language. And they said, after I was saved, I was at the uh, kitchen sink and uh, something fell and broke all over the floor instead of cursing and everything. I didn't say a curse word. Oh, well, that's proof positive that you're saved. Now, I don't, you know, things happen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when it's talking about all these things that take place, that, you know, the, you are a new creature, the old things have passed away, the new things have come. 
That's all talking, even the next verses, talking about what God does for you. They're invisible. They're things that most people don't even know happen when they believe in Jesus Christ. But people take that, those scriptures and say, see, my behavior changed. Your behavior just doesn't change automatically. Now, maybe, you know, some people believe the, the gospel by reading their Bible. I know people that go to this church. That, uh, how will you say, well, I read the Bible and I believed it. Wow. No big experience or anything. The next day, they just go on their way, and all those bad habits they formed, guess what? They were still there. Over time, it takes time learning how to take care of these issues from the spiritual power, not your own power. Anybody can grit their teeth and, and change a habit for a couple of days. Well, I don't know. That's, it's possible. But that's not the same as the Holy Spirit. You've got to change on the inside first. And one of the things that are required for that to do is knowledge. That's why you see knowledge all infused in these scriptures. You have to know something about it. For a certainty does not come to me from, from any kind of reflection on myself or on my state. On the contrary, it comes solely through hearing the Word. Solely because... And insofar as I can cling to the Word of God and its promises, you can know that you're saved because the Word of God is true. It's impossible for God to lie. His promises. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Where's the works in there? Where's the change of everything? I know there are people, if they ever hear this, they're going to get so angry at me because they're all about just the opposite. Now here's some other verses that we um, call, that we brought into play. Uh, y'all can see these on your um, next deal. I'm getting to where we're starting tonight. Starting something new tonight. Easy believism. Ever heard that term before? Easy believism. What is easy believism? And are you guilty of it? Well, I don't know. We've got to get a definition. What is he talking about? Easy believism is certainly not a term of endearment. Zane Hodges wrote a critique of D.A. Carson's article in Westminster Theological Journal entitled Reflections on Christian Assurance. Now, I'm going to use... These are theological journals that I have that I'm quoting very heavily tonight from these journals because they say it so well and they break the issue so clear. And you have here... Zane Hodges, which is a Ph.D., critiquing a book from D.A. Carson, which is a Ph.D. Both of them have Ph.D.s in uh, theology. The only thing is one is right and one's wrong. And so the one that is right, which in this case is Zane Hodges, critiquing D.A. Carson. But I'm not applauding one and trying to disparage the other. Who it is really doesn't matter. What we're looking at is precepts that these people hold and which one is right and which one is wrong. There'll be another one that we're going to look at in a, in a few moments that has uh, John MacArthur's, uh, his book is going to be critiqued. And it's not trying to disparage him either because I'm on the same page with John MacArthur in a lot of things. I think he's, he's uh, added gr greatly to uh, Christianity except in one very important area and it happens to be the gospel. And so keep that in mind. It's not about these guys. It's about what they are presenting. 
All right. Wretched, easy believism. This comes from D.A. Carson. At least that's the, the title of one of his paragraphs. Not surprisingly, Carson also writes about the wretched, easy believism of many in the Western world who, having professed faith, feel no pull towards holiness and no shame when they take the elements. Of course, along with phrases like cheap grace and mental assent, easy believism is one of the jargon terms of the new Puritanism. Now, have you ever heard of cheap grace? No. Have you heard of mental assent? A couple of nods, yes, most of them not so. That second one has really been thrown my way several times. Because when you tell somebody that the essence, the root of the gospel is faith alone and Christ alone, those who would be calling us easy believism types would say, well, all, all you did was have a mental assent. Well, I don't know what you're... Somebody told me I had a mental assent and that was uh, erroneous as far as the gospel goes. You know what I would be asking then? What is a mental assent? At least, what do you think a mental assent is? See how we have to ask questions? We don't want to just jump in there. No, I'm not. I'm not guilty of that. Well, what is it? Well, I don't know, but it I don't, didn't sound good. <laughs> we have to ask for clarification. And when they clarify, they're going to show you the holes in their theology. Don't take it for granted. Hardly ever are these expressions clearly defined and they become little more than religious cuss words to hurl at one's opponent, and thus they serve as a substitute for calmed and reasoned debate. So you haven't lived till someone's hurled some spiritual cuss words your way. Easy believism, mental assent, cheap grace. As the quoted words of Carson show, easy believism, whatever it is, is so obviously bad that it can be described as wretched without any further ado. In other words, <laughs> he doesn't even say what it is. He's just saying it's wretched. So when, when someone hurls one of these spiritual cuss words our way, what are we to do? Listen, you ought to be accustomed to now that whenever I ask you what should you do, you can't go wrong by saying, ask a question. You got that? Hurl it right back at them with a question. What do you mean? What does that mean? And you know what you're going to see usually? Equivocation, floundering, stuttering. You know, It's not working. Just the spiritual curse word itself is supposed to have the effect. You're supposed to be done, undone by that. But when you ask them, can you clarify what that meaning is? They probably can't. And they're probably going to get angry and who knows. See, this is the spice. We're getting down dealing with the gospel. And we don't equivocate with the gospel. We don't, we don't retreat back into the shadows when someone says that you have to work your way to heaven. That's not what we do. 
Now, on some issues, we might say, oh, I'm not going to make an issue of it because you don't want to get someone on your bad side on a, some kind of peripheral issue that really doesn't matter to a hill of beans, and then they're already angry at, you, angry with you when you start to talk about the gospel. But does the rest of Carson's quote actually define this term? No, not at all. Carson speaks of people who have professed faith but are without a holy conscience. Are such persons safe? Do you see what Zane Hodges is doing? He's making a statement that Carson does. Then look at the questions coming next. You see that? This guy, Zane Hodges, is one of my heroes. He died last year. And uh, he wrote The Gospel Under Siege, terrific book, and also uh, absolutely free, as well as other books. You know, I was thinking about this. I'm, I'm, I thought about it. Y'all remind me if I don't come up with this. Y'all are better than a recorder. I, you know, or a note, especially better than notes. I have notes that was going to remind me on a thousand things. Where are those notes? I have no idea. This is what I want you to remind me. I want to get a list of books that I would uh, suggest would be good reading for you. I have several of them. Two of them that I just gave you are, are two of them, but I have probably two dozen books that I could, I could highly recommend to you, and uh, I just need to take the time to do it. And so if a week or a month or a year from now <laughs> the list isn't there, feel free to remind me. But I want you to see what he's saying. He, he says uh, he doesn't give a definition for the term, and he, now he's saying what Carson said, people who have professed faith but are without a holy conscience. This is a statement from Carson. So now we have, are such persons saved? Not for Carson, but also not necessarily for anyone whom I know of in the free grace movement either. In other words, what he's saying is there are people who profess faith in Jesus Christ and they're not saved. You understand that? No telling how many. I imagine they're certainly, they number in the hundreds of millions. I don't know about billions, but certainly in the, in the millions. Maybe even hundreds of millions of people who profess faith in Jesus Christ are not saved. So he's, he's erecting a straw man. Remember what the straw man is? He's accusing those in the free grace movement, which I guess we could be associated with, with that, if you want to put labels or whatever, that if you don't have any works and you don't demand absolute uh, verifiable changes in your behavior after you have been saved, then you probably weren't saved to begin with. You're only a professor of faith. And what we're saying is, hey, we agree with D.A. Carson. So is Zane Hodges. Yeah, there's a lot of people out there that profess faith in Christ and are not saved. That's not the issue. As I have made it clear in print, I emphatically do not believe that all professions of faith are real. I know of no free grace writer who would disagree with me about that. So don't ever say that, or don't fall for the, the ploy that if someone says, well, there's people who just profess faith and they're really not saved. Don't go so far as to try to defend them and say, oh, no, if you profess faith, then you are surely saved. Because we don't have to go far to find a lot 
of people who profess faith in Jesus Christ and they are not saved. All we have to do is go west on 290, about a mile, and there's church sitting on each side and they all profess to believe in Jesus Christ. But if they truly believe and adhere to the ideology of their denomination, they are not saved because they add works to faith. And God only gives eternal life as a gift. You can't work for it. He goes on to say, Now why is this? First, to profess faith is not the same as believing. You understand that? Just because you profess faith in Jesus Christ doesn't mean you believe the gospel. Jehovah Witnesses profess faith in Jesus Christ. Mormons profess faith in Jesus Christ. Does that mean that they're automatically believers? No, because it's another Christ. Jesus Christ is not the brother of Satan. He is God, contrary to what the Jehovah Witnesses will probably say. He's not a God. He is the God. And this is important for us to know why. Have you ever been guilty of this? And I don't want to show a hand I don't, at all. But have you ever talked to someone and witnessed to them and they say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. And you said, hallelujah, brother, I'll see you in heaven. Maybe you didn't say that, but you said, okay, that's a, that's a believer because he, he professed faith in Jesus Christ. But you never followed up with not one other question like, how do you know? How do you know that you are going to heaven? And is there anything else you need to do to go to heaven other than just believe in Jesus Christ? If you just ask those two questions, you'd find out whether they are professors not, not professors in college. You know. This English language is crazy. Uh, those who would profess, who would claim that they believe in Jesus Christ. You see how this is applicable to us? After all, P uh, Paul speaks of false brethren down in Jerusalem who apparently only pretended to be Christians. Galatians chapter 2, 4. But second, the, con uh, the content or the object of a man's faith may be false. And these are, there, there are people, listen, there are people that are morally straight. They are nice, kind people. And they say they believe in Jesus Christ. They go to church. They quote Scripture. And that, that dupes most of people. But if they're adding anything other than faith to salvation, they are not saved. That's why he's, he's, he's saying it right. The content or object, the content of the gospel, and if the content is wrong, the object is wrong, then they're not saved. It may be false. If the true biblical gospel is not what is believed, then, of course, the professed believer has believed something that will not save him. Regrettably, many people believe a gospel that is unbiblical. If that is all they have ever believed about the way of salvation, believing it will not save them. That's why people hate John chapter 14 uh, I think it's verse uh, 8. You know what that one is? 
You don't remember? I am the truth, the way, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Oh, unbelievers gnash their teeth at that. Who are you to say that you have the only way? I didn't say it. God said it. Right? The problem really isn't with you. It's with God. You know, I need to have some uh, blood pressure pills sitting right by my little table there whenever I watch these talk shows. Have you ever watched The View? (laughs) Well, and they always have, uh, when was it, last, yesterday, the day before, I don't remember, Dancing with the Stars came on. And I took, I took ballroom dancing, and I like to see them dance. I think it's nice. And there was one of them that was, uh, the stars was Marina Navaturola. You remember? Do you know her? She was showing off her biceps. Anyway, she is a lesbian and proud of it. And she was on some talk show. I don't remember which one it was. This is probably six, eight, maybe ten years ago. And all this talk show host was just fawning over, oh, so wonderful that you're a lesbian and you, you came out. Oh, this is just so wonderful. And let's all celebrate. And he was just, ah. And one Christian raised his hand in the audience. and They recognized him. He says, yes. And he said, well, all I've got to say is the Bible is against homo- uh, lesbianism and I think it's wrong. And you heard this gasp <gasps> in the audience. And, of course, this guy didn't know the Old Testament from the New Testament. And Marina ripped him to shreds because he was ignorant of doctrine. The first thing she said to him was, I thought that Christians were supposed to love one another. And he started shrinking. You know, like that was unloving to say. And she said, and I thought that Christians weren't supposed to to judge. And he sat down. Oh, I'd love to trade places with him. (laughs) But uh, hopefully you would know how to answer those questions. Need I explain? You want to hear the answers? Okay. First of all, uh, loving a, a person does not mean condoning their sins. And we love the person, but we do not condone the sins that they have. And I, am, I would be required as a believer to love you. You could be Charles Manson. You could be uh, whoever. And I'm still required to love you, but I'm not to condone what you're saying. Second of all, I am required to make discernments and judgments based on the Word of God. And since you and the, the, the guy that was uh, the talk show host was just trotting out your lesbianism and wanting to celebrate it, then I have a, a, a responsibility by God to judge whether that is correct according to the Bible or not. And it clearly is not. So I'm not judging you. I'm judging what you are advocating. And I have a right to do it from the Bible. And I have the Bible, which I feel, I know is the Word of God, 
And you have I don't know what to substantiate your lifestyle. Something along those natures, you know, something like that. That doesn't mean there's a silver bullet, but at least it would give some perspective out there and it wouldn't be some... See, when people see that, they say, oh, yeah, Christians, you a bunch of bumpkins. They just fell off the turnip truck and they can't rub two sticks together to make a fire. Y'all don't ever seen any of that kind of thing? We are saved by believing truth, not error. That is to say, only the gospel saves, and that is an accurate gospel. Now, here's, that was, that was uh, Zane Hodges critiquing D.A. Carson's book or article on assurance. Now, we switched and we have uh, J. Kevin Butcher is a pa- well I'll get to that in a minute let me get this first you know if this is indented that um, it's a quote and if it's over here the full width it's just statements for me have y'all picked up on that yet okay easy believism is used by those who believe that works are necessary to maintain eternal salvation And those who believe that works are the evidence that one has truly been saved to accuse those who believe that eternal salvation is acquired entirely by faith alone, that's us, of distorting the gospel. So when someone says that you are guilty of easy believism or use a mental ascent or cheap grace or any of these things, recognize They're not happy with what you believe. So, this J. J. Kevin Butcher. You know, I've never heard of this Butcher. Um, (laughs) This Kevin Butcher. But there are people, there are pastors. He's probably, maybe, a well, uh, I'll never be uh, writing articles for these journals. I doubt that uh, that will happen. But some of these people who are unknown that are, they would say, essentially uncredentials, sometimes they nail it, and this guy has. So, J. Kevin Butcher, pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Detroit, addressed this issue, that is, easy, easy believism, in an article in a journal of the Grace Evangelical Society entitled, A Critique of the Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur. So that's what this is going to be about. But remember, it's not about the people, the guys here. It's about what they're expressing. So here's his first quote. He, that being MacArthur, does well when he states his own position describing lordship salvation as a gospel that requires a faith that commits all. I want to stop there for just a moment. Uh, a, A while back, there was a couple that came and they were visiting, and this was, I don't know, years ago. I can't keep track of time. And afterwards they came up, oh, this is a great message, and blah, 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 and they said that they were big uh, John MacArthur followers. I said, oh, really? Yes, they were. And I said, well, okay. And they came back. They came back several times. And then I, one time they came back, and I was, um, I wouldn't say confronted. Maybe confronted would be the right word. Uh, one of these two people said, I, I don't think you're using this term, lordship salvation, properly. 
because I was using it in a disparaging way. Uh, does everybody know what the typical nomenclature, uh, the, the easy, I mean, uh, large hip salvation is the typical nomenclature that is used by theologians to describe people who say that you, you're not saved unless you make Lord, Jesus Christ, Lord of all. In fact, their famous saying is that Jesus is not Lord at all if he's not Lord of all. And he's talking about making Jesus Lord of your life. And all of these changes have to take place for you to make him Lord of your life. And we call it Lordship Salvation. It is a system of works for eternal life. Now, I said that because... When you see Lordship Salvation here, this is the way that John MacArthur used it. These people were following John MacArthur, and he's on board with it. He thinks it's fine. And that's why, can you see why I was confronted? And all I said, I said, uh, well, you can use it however you want to. I'm just using it the way you see it in the journals and, and the theological books and the commentaries. They all use it in that way. Uh, but you can use it however way you want to. So... Uh, so MacArthur was, does well when he states his own position describing lordship salvation that requires a faith that commits all. In other words, if you're truly saved, you have to commit everything in your life to Christ. A repentance that gives up sin. You have to repent of your sin and give it up. He's given, notice, page numbers where these are being quoted. And a submission to the mastership of Christ. Is, now, oh, but I don't know what this... He didn't say acquired, he said apprehended. So I can't... You say things like this or you're talking really clear to what? What do you mean by that? So I'm not sure. But anyway, the gospel according to MacArthur... Figured that out yet. How it can be a gift and yet... Because I have... You've heard... That what distinguishes a gift... Oh, i surprised. And came and said, here's your birthday present. 35... What? Surprise there, is it? It's linked with various false gospels, most health and wealth gospels. The no assigning a card, raising a hand, is also harsh. We probably would be just to grace position. And not. Now, these are the things that he's saying with regards to the first people. So, he said, the author's greatest misunderstanding is representative easy believism. Unregenerate, spiritually blind, Absolutely depraved, just trust an unseen, crucified, and resurrected Jesus. Are you getting that? Again, self seen that goes from the grave and believes to have it. And that's what has to But our disguffle that is in the first of the six types of grace, which we call common grace. Right, kids? That was on their test yesterday. Yes. Sure it is. Yeah. But what he's showing is, this is supposed to be easy to believe this? Let me go on. He, he, he uh, expands it some here. By the way, common grace is when God takes the gospel, which is spiritual information, and enables a spiritually dead, uh, depraved, unbeliever enables them to understand it. That's why when you're talking to unbelievers, 
don't get into anything other than the gospel because that's what the Holy Spirit will enlighten him. He will be able to understand it. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit at the gospel. That's what it's all about. But if you're trying to debate whether they're supposed to tithe or not, uh, I don't see anything in Scripture that would indicate that God is going to enlighten him on that because it's not pertinent. In reality, however, the free grace position acknowledges that trusting in Jesus Christ alone is hard. We, we, we're saying that from the human perspective. For pompous man to admit his sinfulness and cast all his confidence upon the work done in his behalf by an unseen substitute is a task of the greatest magnitude. Indeed, it is an impossible task without the humbling, convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, easy believism is a label that cannot be accurately attached to the free grace movement. Now, we sing a song that uh, believe in Christ, it's easy. You know, this is uh, the name of it from the uh, MASH. What, what's the name of it? Yeah, suicide, yeah well, I mean, uh, what, what is the name of our song? We sing? What is it? The winner song. That's it. The winner song. Thank you, George. The winner song, and the 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 chorus is "Believe in Christ. It's easy." What's the next? And learn His word, and you'll see. And what? That you can win in life and eternity. Can you believe? Imagine what the people who would accuse us of being easy believers would do on that song. <laughs> gnash their teeth and shake their hands. Now, it is easy in the sense that God has done it all. We don't have to do anything other than what? Receive the gift. It's hard in the sense that we have to overcome our own arrogance. We have to come o overcome all of the lies that are out there about how you've got to uh, commend yourself to God and work your way to heaven and all these types of things. It's hard in that sense, but it's easy in the sense that when you hear the gospel, God convicts you, and you have positive volition, boom, it's done. It's easy because you don't have to work for it. Have you ever wondered why when you give the gospel to someone, it's the good news? We should be so eager because everybody's out there believing the lie. Uh, look at the Catholics. I mean, they've got this whole host of things that they have to do. All these sacraments and all the razzmatazz. And even then, they say, well, we can't guarantee you. You're going to make it. You've got to go to this little uh, mini hell first. And you've got to fry in there for a while. And how long? Well, we can't tell you how long, but you give us more money, we can shorten the time. Now, that's a deal. <laughs> Man, and people believe that? These are the things that we have to overcome. Some of you were in Catholicism. These have a grip on you. I mean, when everybody that you know and all your family and all everybody you know believe this thing, it's not that easy to go a different route. The easy part is that God has done it all. When Christ said it is finished on the cross, it was finished. The only thing left to do is receive it. And you've got to get over your arrogance to do it. That's, what, that's why the gospel, the true gospel, is not readily accepted by everybody 
because they have to go contrary to what they thought before. They have to go contrary to what most people think. They have to go contrary to their arrogance. They're very proud. That's why the religious people are the hardest to, to witness to because they have this mountain of viewing good that they've done. They're so proud of. And they have to agree with Paul that that is crapola before they're going to recognize that they need a Savior. You have to be humble for that to happen. That's not easy. The free grace movement is unwilling to concede that difficulty in salvation lies in man's need to surrender himself totally to God as part of the act of saving faith. You know, we just say, you know, you have to believe. But you're not going to believe in the gospel if you don't think you need to be saved to begin with. Most people don't. They don't think that they, why do I need to be saved? Especially people who have been in a church, they've been in some religious system that they say, you've got you to keep working, you've got to do this, you've got to be accepted by God. Somebody that has plenty of money and they're not down destitute and looking up like Nebuchadnezzar did. You know what it took for Nebuchadnezzar to become a believer? He was out there chewing grass with the cows for years before he was finally humble enough and he couldn't even say I accept the gospel or I accept the uh, all he could do is just look up and God knew his thoughts he was ready and that's what it takes for some people and then some people never get it they never give up their arrogance so I would say that easy believism is a misnomer the only way that it's easy is because God has done everything but it's hard for people to get over their arrogance and their the lies that they believe for so long and just simply trust in the Lord. This is a good time to stop because look, simply believing the facts. This is another uh, another false idea that they hurl at us that all you have to do is acknowledge the facts and they put it in a way that it's not personal and all these things. We'll, we'll do that next time. And if anybody is called, a, if anybody tells you between now and next week that you're guilty of easy believism, I want to hear about it. And I want to hear what you say. <laughs> I'll not say that because you won't tell me. Okay, let's close. Father, thank you for your grace. We're so thankful that nothing depends upon us other than humbling ourselves before the mighty God of the universe that has done more than we can ever imagine in order to give us the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Savior. For all eternity, we will be thanking you for this. There's no way that we can even grasp it now, but maybe then will have more capacity to appreciate who and what you are. But in the meantime, we're on the front lines in the devil's world, and most people have believed the lie. So we pray that you will prepare us and help us to look forward to those who would challenge us with regards to uh, your character and would impugn it by alleging that we can work our way into your grace. So we pray that you will help us to do this, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.